Well, good morning. Uh, we've been on an epic journey as a church for the last, uh, since September until now, we've been on an epic journey going through the story of the Bible together. And this Sunday is the last Sunday in that progression that, we've, that we started in September. Next week, we'll have a very significant series uh, for, for our church that we've been planning for all, all year long uh, called Start With Blessing. And we believe that it will, Lord willing, have the ability to shape our church's engagement in our community for many years to come. So don't miss next week's series, but I'm excited uh, today to bring the last message in our story series. Let me just start by saying I'm hoping you'll engage me a little bit with some feedback online. So I'm going to ask a question that you can make comments about on Facebook, or if you're watching on YouTube, you can make comments, and we'll uh, notice those comments and we'll utilize them later in my message. So this is the question I have. It's for anyone who drives or who dreams about driving. So if you're young and you don't have a license yet, but you're thinking about it someday, do you have a dream sports car? If you were to drive on a long stretch of highway that had no speed limit and nothing to run into, uh, it's totally safe to go as fast as you want, what would be your dream car to take on this kind of high-speed run? So... Make some comments. Go ahead right now. If you know automatically off the top of your head what that car is, just type it in. Uh, maybe you want to say why. I don't know if you do, but we'll check your comments. We'll make a list, and later on we'll see, we'll report back. Maybe there'll be a favorite that'll emerge among the comments online. So go ahead, make those comments now, and I'll come back to them later. All right, so I want to read out of Revelation chapter 21. Verses 22, and I'll go into chapter 22, verse 5. It says, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city did not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nation will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night, and they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The whole Bible leads to this picture in Revelation. What began in the first pages of the Bible is accomplished in the last pages of the Bible. And Genesis tells us that God created the heavens and the earth, and Revelation describes a new heaven and a new earth. In chapter 1 of Genesis, God made the sun and the stars, and in this last chapter of Revelation, we have a city that doesn't need a sun or a moon to shine on it because the glory of God gives us light, and the Lamb, who is Jesus, is its lamp. In Genesis, paradise is lost, and in Revelation, paradise 
is regained. Satan appears in the first garden to tempt and deceive, but he's banished from the eternal garden. People lost the ability to eat from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, but were invited to eat from it again in the Garden of Heaven. In Genesis, man hides from God, but in Revelation, God dwells with man. I told you last week that my wife likes to watch HGTV, and I occasionally will watch some of it with her, but the one renovation show above them all that I watched the most episodes with her was called Extreme Home Makeover. And you may be quite familiar with that show. They'd pick an old home that had lots of problems and a family that had lots of troubles. And so they'd take this, what they would call the serving family and this decrepit house, and they would do either a total renovation or they would just knock it down and replace it with a brand new home. One thing they did was they'd keep the good and the familiar. And so they'd go in there and say, oh, there's that, there's that, there's that, from their, from their old life. But they replaced everything that was bad. And at the end, the design team hugs the family, and they go inside, and they shout and cry and hug and dance. And I'm pretty sure my wife would cook onions on the stove during this because sometimes even my eyes would water. Do you remember what would happen before they could see their house? Before they could have the revelation of the new house? They'd yell, driver, move that bus, move that bus. That was the only thing blocking them before the big reveal, and they get everyone chanting it, but it was the family that had to lead it. They had to, of their own accord, speak out that request. Driver, move that bus. Bus. You know, I was thinking about this, and I thought, in, in a silly way, but maybe some serious ways, there's a lot of parallels to the book of Revelation. The big reveal doesn't happen after moving a bus, but it does happen after opening a scroll. And last week, we talked about that. Who was worthy to open this scroll? There's a worship happening in heaven, and, and it leads up to this crescendo, and then no one's found worthy. And it's devastating, because there needs to be someone who's found worthy and then the Lamb, who is Jesus, steps forward. One of my favorite songs during these last couple months has been Andrew Peterson's song, Is He Worthy? And I want to read you some of the lyrics from this song. And this is not a song about a rundown house and a single family in need. This is a song about the hunger in human hearts and how God plans to satisfy that hunger with himself. So let me read you the lyrics. It says, Do you feel the world is broken? And there's this course response to all of these lines. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be a light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. And then the chorus. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave, has David's root. he is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Of all blessing and honor and glory, is he worthy of this? He is. Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. 
And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those he loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. There's more to the song, but I'll leave it at that. I have three things to tell you today. And the first one is simply this, and they're all out of this message of Revelation. The first one is that God has space for you. God has space for you. Or another way of saying it might be God has a place for you, a place with space for you. And we read about that in Revelation 21, the second last chapter in the entire Bible. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Now this is a very interesting picture. A city, a massive city, huge city, coming down. And it's prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Why is a huge city described as being dressed as a bride? Because it's a wedding venue. It's a wedding venue. You know how the bride might plan her own outfit, but then she might also do a lot of planning on how that venue she'll be married in will match what she looks like and what her colors are and all those different things. In this season of COVID-19, there's going to be an awful lot of small weddings. In fact, uh, my nephew's planning to get married in one month. I was supposed to be the MC, and our daughter was supposed to be the flower girl. But now that the amount of attendees are reduced to a top 10 list, I'm pretty sure our whole family will be sitting at home watching it on Zoom because there's going to be a lot of small weddings. But the New Jerusalem is the venue for the biggest wedding in history. The biggest wedding in history. What wedding are we talking about? Who's getting married? It's the long-anticipated wedding of Jesus and his bride. Finally, Jesus and his people. That's who the bride is. It's, it's a people. It's a people from every nation and tribe and, and, and tongue from all over the world. The multi-ethnic family of God is going to be united with Jesus. And Jesus has prepared an amazing place for them to come together and to live. I asked my nephew Michael, who's getting married next month, I said, what have you done to prepare your place for your bride, Georgina? And uh, I put him on the spot with this question. So he basically said, well, nothing yet. But then he thought about it. And he said, well, I suppose I maybe could consider doing a deep cleaning of my place. <laughs> and, and maybe getting rid of some of my clothes so that she can have half the closet. Now, I laughed when I heard that. And maybe some of you are laughing at home. Half the closet. Yeah, that's how I used to think too. And uh, now I know better. He might be 6'5", and she's only 5'2", but I can guarantee you she's going to take up way more space in his closet than he knows. Now, he already owns a house, and after they get married, she's going to move in with him. And maybe they'll make a big deal about it, and he'll dramatically carry her across the threshold. Maybe he'll say something like, Welcome to the place I have prepared for you. What's the simplest idea behind marriage? A man and a woman want to be together. And... They believe that them being together is going to be awesome. And so they make a commitment just to do that. Let's be together for life. Let's do this. God's big idea that we see from Genesis to Revelation is simply that he wants to be with us. You see it through the Bible from start to finish. Adam and Eve, in God's original plan in the garden, they walked with God in the cool of the day. They had that intimate relationship with God. Then the great separation of sin, which infected all mankind and even nature, happened. 
So Adam and Eve said, I don't want to obey God. We want to be God. We want to be in charge. We want to make our own path. We want to go our own way. And because they rejected their creator and because they went their own way into selfishness and narcissism and sin, they were exiled from the garden. But God's continual message of his ongoing desire to be with his creation is there all the way through the Bible. For example, in the nation of Israel, the temple showed God's intention, but it also showed our reality. God desired to be with his people. And so in the center of Jerusalem with the temple and in the center of the wandering Israelites with the tabernacle, God would fill the space called the Holy of Holies with his presence, with his spirit. The only problem was that because of the sin of the people, they couldn't just go in there and be right in the presence of God. There was a curtain, a very thick curtain that separated them as a barrier between the Holy of Holies and the people. And, it, and there was one time a year, one time a year, where one priest who was a representative of everybody could make one trip into that presence of God in the Holy of Holies and then come out again. And that was, it showed that God wants to be with his people, but it also showed that our sin has separated us from us. We were unwilling to recognize our Creator and go His way. And so all of us are born into sin. We're born with that natural tendency to go our way and not God's way. Now the temple, as good as it was, it wasn't good enough for God. The plan to deal with our separation, which was Jesus' death, uh, was enacted. So God planned for our reconciliation to give us this great opportunity That's why Jesus came to die, to take all the punishment, the blame, the shame for our sins on himself so that we could receive something on ourselves, and that is his righteousness. Jesus was perfect, sinless, and always obeyed, unlike us. So his account, our account was transferred to him, and the possibility of his account being transferred to us happened on the cross, the great exchange. Of course, we have to activate that in our lives. Jesus said to his disciples that he was, that even that, even what happened on the cross was still not the full revelation of what God wanted. Remember, he wants to dwell with us. And so Jesus told his disciples this in John 14, 2 to 3. He said, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. This promise from Jesus is what we're reading about today in Revelation. I will, I will be back. That wasn't just, you know, that's not just a line from Terminator. I will be back, said Jesus. And I'll take you to be with me and you also, that you also may be where I am. Now, even with Jesus gone, the disciples and his followers for, through the centuries have still experienced relationship with God because now the Holy Spirit, instead of coming to fill a room in a temple, comes to fill people. And so people experience God's peace, his joy, his comfort, uh, the transcendent wonder of who he is through the Holy Spirit coming inside of them. But this still falls short of what God had in mind. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, uh, and this is out of the love chapter. We often read it at weddings. So it says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know, know, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So 
few things out of there. God knows you fully and loves you in spite of your sin. Same for me. He knows me fully and loves me in spite of my sin. But we only experience and know God in a limited way for now. It's still amazing. For those of you who know God and experience the transformation he can bring into a life, you'll say, well, it's still amazing. But there's more. And that's what Revelation is telling us. There is more. What Adam and Eve lost, we will regain. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, again, uses this marriage and, and, and us and God uh, comparison. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the water, through the word, and presenting her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Then it goes on to say at the end, Paul says, This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. The coming together of God and his people is not, and this might be a new thought for you, but it's not modeled after marriage. You say, well, it looks like God saw what marriage was and then used that as an illustration to help us understand us coming together. Actually, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. God has always had in his intentions to bring him, himself and his people together. That's always been the ultimate reality. And then after, God creates, and then God creates marriage as well. So marriage is always speaking to us about something bigger. Marriage is an ultimate. Relationship with God is. And you know, that's really good news. If you've, if you've experienced pain and heartache and, and difficulty in regards to marriage, whether you wanted to be married and haven't been able to, or you've been married and maybe you're separated or divorced, or you're married but just, you know that it's a struggle. Something purer and greater is coming. And marriage points to that. And so every time at a wedding, when someone reads 1 Corinthians 13, they read about the descriptions of love, love is patient, love is kind, etc., etc. But you know what? You should also read that other verse. That right now, we only see, our experience with God is like through a, it's like looking in a mirror. Or as the old King James Version would say, through a glass darkly. It's like we still haven't had the full experience of, of relationship with God, but that is coming. We will know him even better than we know him now. Revelation 21 and verse 3, it says, I, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. That's been his plan from the beginning to the end. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You know, I'm thankful for technology. I'm thankful for the ability to make a Zoom call and see people that I care about. But you know what? It's not as good as being face-to-face. It's not as good as being in the room. It's not as good as being able to uh, high-five and hug and touch and all those things. It's not as good. So what we experience now, even though it's good in our relationship with God, it's not as good as what is coming. And many times when we experience uh, the pain of this life or difficulties in this world, we're, we're, we long for that extreme makeover in our lives. We long for that extreme change in our lives that God is promising. So the good news in Revelation is that God has a place for us, but it's more than that. It's more than that. God also has what I'd like to call face-to-face for us. God has face-to-face for us. 
So this is good news. If you're longing for the closer relationship you will yet have, let me read about it for you. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. You know, you think about it, wiping away every tear. This really stood out to me when I read this this week. He personally, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I thought about that. You mean he's not going to delegate that to an angelic being or delegate that? Okay, you guys just comfort each other. He will wipe away every tear. You know, when my three-year-old cries, there's a big difference between her wiping away her tears and me wiping away her tears. It's the engagement of somebody else who's there to comfort and, and to restore. And I'm just thinking about that this week. I don't know this for absolute sure, but could it be that the healing of emotional pain is the first thing that you will experience in the presence of Jesus? It seems possible by what we read. Could it be that the one who's been working in the background all your life, he's been working for your good and my good all our lives, he will comfort us in that moment. Maybe part of that comfort is he'll tell us what he was doing. There's lots of times in my life where I'm going, God, what are you doing? I don't understand this. This is difficult. This is hard. I want this to end. I want this to change. And God is good. Many times I've prayed for things to change and they have changed, but other times they haven't. Maybe part of the comfort that we experience in heaven is maybe that God will reveal his work behind the scenes. I don't know if that's true, but I imagine that that would bring incredible emotional comfort to our lives, that what we suffer now has a reason, it has a purpose. Our lower story, our individual story, is part of a great big transcendent story, and we see how it interlocks and how it connects. Revelation 21 and 5 to 7 says, He who is seated on the throne says, I'm making everything new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I'll give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Wow. I'll give water without cost to the spring from the spring of the water of life. So the thirsty. No, I don't think it's just talking about, well, you didn't have a drink of water and you're in heaven, you'll get water. Uh, I think it's much more than that. We have all sorts of human thirsts. Right? We, we want so many things, and sometimes we have trouble experiencing them. Uh, I just think of a few. Love, significance, belonging, meaning and purpose. We want those things. We long for those things. And I think every one of those thirsts, uh, it, Jesus will satisfy when we're with him. So it all sounds so good. When will this happen? When Jesus comes again. Now, I, I heard a story a few years ago. Um, I went to a, a, um, a college called Eston College, and uh, they sent a bunch of um, students over to Australia one year. And while they were in Australia, they were working on a university campus, and there was a, um, a campus group who, of Christians who also were working, so they sort of teamed up. And one day in their team-up, they were praying together, and one of the uh, the Eston College students uh, was thanking God about coming and, and dying on the cross so that we could be forgiven for our sins, but then went on to say, and thank you that you're coming again. And it, I don't know whether they were interrupted right away or after the prayer, uh, the other person jumped in. But one of the Christians on this campus who was working with this campus uh, ministry, they said, what, what are you talking about? What did you just say? He's coming again? How, how come no one's told me this? 
Where do you find that in the Bible? Like, show me that. I need to know. This is exciting. This is awesome. He is coming again. And it made me think when I heard that story, I thought, maybe we don't talk about this very much. Maybe we don't give it the emphasis that it deserves, that Jesus is coming again. And this great promise, they said, I'm going to be back. He said to his disciples, I'm going to be back. I'm going to prepare a place for you, but then I'll come back and take you there. Then maybe we don't emphasize it enough. So when is Jesus going to come together? Again, several times in Revelation, included in the second last verse of Revelation, so it's the second last verse of the Bible, I'm going to read that to you. It says that Jesus is coming soon. Let me read it. Revelation 22:20. 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And then the response, it seems from John, who's the one receiving the revelation, is, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. Or as people have said throughout the centuries, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So, Jesus is coming soon? Well, but that was 2,000 years ago. How can that possibly be accurate? Well, I want to talk a little bit about coming soon. Now, I rarely get into Greek words, partially because I didn't do a lot of study in Greek words. But the other reason is because our English translations from Greek and Hebrew are really reliable. They're really good. And so you don't need to know Greek to read the Bible and understand what God is up to. But this one is cool, so I thought I'd share it. Soon is the Greek word tacos. No, tacos? Tachos. Ah, I'm not saying it right. It's not tacos, nom, 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 like you eat them. But it's tacos, tacos. Slightly different, tacos. It's the same word from which we, it's the same root word from which we get the instrument that's found in a lot of sports cars. So in this sports car, you'll find, at, can you guess what it is? Tacos, tachometer, a tachometer. Okay, if you're playing at home, you get a thousand points if you got it right. A tachometer, a tachometer, what is a tachometer? Well, it shows you how fast the engine revolutions are happening in your car. So you see the RPMs, revolutions per minute, and it also helps you know when to shift gear, gears. And also one of our phrases that we use a lot in our culture redlining, it comes from a tachometer because there's an area on your tachometer that's in red. You're revving too high or you're revving really high. And sometimes our lives are redlining. So the tachometer shows you when to shift gears. It shows you how fast things are happening, how quick that they are. So tacos can be translated two different ways. It can be translated as soon as it is in this verse. It could also be translated as quickly. And soon talks about when someone's coming. I'm coming soon. But Quickly talks about how they're coming. Like, I am coming very fast. So I'm going to quickly get our results here. I've got a nice little whiteboard here that tells me uh, the results. So you said, what's your dream car? Now, we've got, to all, I'll, I'll hold off suspense to the end. Number two, in second place was Porsche. Two people picked Porsche and tied with that is an older Mustang. People want the real muscle car, the classic Mustang. A Bugatti Veyron, I understand why you'd want that, if, because that's probably the fastest one on the list. A, Ma- a Mazda Miata, very nice. Um, uh, somebody said Bumblebee, so I, that's cool. That's a bug, right? A beetle? Okay. What? The Transformer Bumblebee, but isn't he a, whatever, he's a beetle, I'm pretty sure, before he transforms. Oh, he's a Charger, Dodge Charger. Okay, whatever. DeLorean, obviously, I, no, I don't want to watch Transformers again, never mind. A DeLorean, everybody wants a DeLorean, thank you, yeah, that's very good. And then, probably the oddest one on the list, someone said they want a K-car because it's a nice, reliant automobile. So thank you for that. But number one on the list is a Ferrari, a Ferrari, oh my goodness, that's great. Wow, 
so here's, here's my illustration that I'll use the Ferrari for. Okay, three of you said Ferrari. Um, imagine with me a family, a family living in Germany at one end of the Autobahn. And the Autobahn is a highway with no speed limit. It's suggested speed limit is 130 kilometers an hour, but it's not enforced, so you can go any speed you want on most stretches of the Autobahn. And they're planning to move from one end of the Autobahn to the other end of the Autobahn, and so Dad is going to go down there and get the place prepared for the family. And then he'll come back. So he says to his son, when I come home, we will move there, but before we move, if you've cleaned your room and mowed the lawn before I come back, I'll take you out for ice cream in the Ferrari. Most of you are cringing. Ice cream, a child in the Ferrari. <laughs> it's okay, it's just a dream sequence here. So the child, after dad goes, begins to ask the mom, Mommy, when is daddy coming home? And she says this, nobody knows. He's got a lot of details to, to set up the house on the other end so we can move there. In fact, it could take him a long time or a little amount of time, but he, the reality is he could come any day. He could finish up his details any day. So we don't know when he's coming exactly. He could come any day, but we do know that when he comes, he will come quickly because he's driving a Ferrari. So if you wait until he texts mommy and says he's coming home, even though he's 100 kilometers away, you will not have time to clean your room and mow the lawn before he arrives. Because he's doing 0 to 60 in 3 seconds. And he's probably doing the quarter mile in 11 seconds. And he's probably going 300 kilometers an hour at top speed. And so daddy will be home before you clean your room and mow your lawn. So in that case, waiting for a warning or a text before you do what you should do will lead to bitter disappointment. You should clean your room and mow the lawn as soon as you can. So when is, when is Jesus coming? People throughout the centuries have foolishly tried to figure it out. I remember when I was a teenager, a book came out that was for the future. And it said 88 reasons, basically, why Jesus would come in 1988. And the talk about my, with myself and some of my peers, who many of them were Christians, was that um, that doesn't seem smart. Because didn't Jesus say something about this? And sure enough, 1988 came and Jesus didn't come. And so then I think he had a follow-up pamphlet, 89 reasons why he'll probably come in 89. <laughs> Anyhow, one reason. You don't need 88 reasons. You don't need 89 reasons. One reason why you shouldn't try to predict Jesus' return is it because Jesus said that nobody knows when? Matthew 24, 36 says, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So, if you're going to say, well, you know what? I'm not going to get my life right with God, but I'm just going to sort of watch the signs of the times, and, and then when I see things sort of progressing pretty quickly, then I'll get my life right with God. Well, that's not a very good strategy, uh, because... Nobody knows when and when he comes. So is Jesus going to return soon? Yes, but soon isn't defined for us. In fact, I'll give you some more to help you understand soon. But we do know for sure he's also coming quickly. That when Jesus' return is happening, it will happen so quickly you won't be prepared. And Jesus taught that again and again through many parables and illustrations. The thief in the night or the wedding attendants who weren't ready when the bride and groom came together. Living in the knowledge that Jesus could come now or any day present, is important. 
but also having a humility that our time in history might not be the final chapter through, is also important. Let me give you Peter's perspective. This will also help you. So he wrote about this. So if someone was to say, well, it seems like that promise isn't coming true. Jesus didn't come soon. Let me just read you 2 Peter 3, 3 to 4. It says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, and the last days is a term that probably goes from Jesus' resurrection until when Jesus comes again. So when people say, we're in the last days, that's always right. But it doesn't just mean this little stretch at the end. It really means this whole stretch where Jesus could come. So, in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it as it has since the beginning of creation. So Peter, in the time of just after Jesus' death and resurrection, wrote this down so people would have a reference point. He goes on to say, so he says, scoffers are going to come, they're going to make this objection. Here's what you need to know. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So if you think, Jesus is coming soon, in, G, in his mindset, in God's mindset, that could be days, weeks, or thousands of years. So when Jesus says he's coming soon, it's soon according to God's timetable and God's perspective. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then he goes on to say, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The like a thief analogy is not talking that Jesus is coming to steal or he's the thief. It's coming to say that if someone snuck into your backyard at night or something and stole your bike or whatever, you wouldn't necessarily have any warning that that was going to happen. You just wake up the next morning and know the reality of what happened. And that's the same for when Jesus comes. We'll wake up or we'll be aware suddenly that he's here. So there's a foolish strategy some people have. I said, I'm just going to ignore God until my deathbed, and then I'll make a decision for him. I'll, I'll sort of give him what's left of my life. It's sort of like if you were to imagine your life like a, a flower, and you've plucked off all the petals, and there's only one left at the end, and then you say, here you go, God. <laughs> I, that was me. I used all those for selfish living and just for myself, and now, I'm really, now that I'm, there's nothing left, I'm willing to give you my life. Now, people come to Christ on their deathbed. That's true. I just think it's a bad strategy to plan for this. God is gracious. And so many people have come to Christ in the last minute. In fact, one of the great illustrations in the Bible is the thief on the cross who turns to Jesus. He has nothing left to give Jesus. He's going to die right away. And he just says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today, you'll be with me. Wow. So God is that good. God is that kind. God is that wonderful in his responsiveness to people who, reach, who, who turn to him. But if you make that your game plan, I'm going to turn to God in the last second or in the last day or in the last week. That's a foolish strategy. Because first, you don't know when you're going to die. And secondly, you don't know when he's going to come again. So there's two ways that your plan could be interrupted. Most likely would be interrupted if you made that your plan. So Jesus is coming soon, according to what God considers is soon. And Jesus is coming quickly. Now this one, because of the way it's been talked, is according to how we consider quickly. 
In other words, you won't have time. So these are both good reasons. Jesus can, can, can invade history anytime he wants. He can come back as a conqueror. He can come back as the, the groom who's prepared for his, the, the coming together of him and his people. And we don't know when he'll come, but we do know he'll come quickly when he comes. So how can I be ready? Revelation talks about a great white throne and two types of books, and I'm going to end with this, this piece here. I'll read it to you. It's sobering, but it's, it's what's there. Revelation 20, 11 to 15, it says, that, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So there's books of the record of everything we've done in our lives, and then there's the book of life. The sea gave up, gave up their dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Wow, it's pretty sobering stuff. If this brings me to the third point I want to make. I said that God has space for you or he has a place for you. I said God has face to face for you. But here's the biggest and the most significant one probably for some of us is that God has grace for you. Nobody deserves to be with Jesus forever. Nobody's earned that. That's not what Christianity teaches. It doesn't teach that you or you are good enough, or you do enough right things that God finally says, okay, you've earned your way uh, into relationship with me. No, the Bible makes it clear that there's none righteous, not one. Everybody's gone their own way. In Isaiah, it says, we're like sheep that decided not to follow the shepherd. We just went our own way. It was clear we, could, we should be following him, but we decided not to follow God. And so our situation is drastic. It's significantly uh, serious. We are not going to get into this relationship with God. We're not going to have eternity with God because we deserve it. The only way we can have it is because we receive his grace. So when, God went, when, when Jesus went to the cross, he was doing what we couldn't do for ourselves. We couldn't make ourselves right with God. But he became an acceptable sacrifice. He became the placeholder. He became the one who went in our stead. And because he did that, the opportunity for reconciliation with God exists. So today, people can approach God, not blocked by a curtain, cur, cur, curtain or not left out of Eden because of, uh, you know, blocked that way or something like that. But we can come to God and be reconciled to him because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. You know what heaven's going to be like? You know what eternity with God is going to be like? It's going to be the most grateful place you've ever been. Why? Because nobody is there because of what they did. Everybody is there because of what Jesus did. So gratitude is going to be the theme of eternity. So if you're sick of grumbling and complaining and whining on this earth, you're going to like heaven. You're going to like eternity with God. Maybe some of that grumbling and whining and complaining is your own or my own. I'm going to be happy 
to, for some of my grumbling to cease. Because there, we'll have a full revelation of all that God has done for us, and our response will be gratitude. So how can you be there on that day? The last verse of the Bible. Do you know what the last verse of the Bible says? It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. It's, the last thing is about God's grace. God has grace for you. God has grace for you. He sees you in, his, in your sin, just like that thief on the cross who turned to Jesus and said, like, what did he have to offer? What could he give to God? His hands were empty. He had nothing. He was probably on that cross because of his life of sin, which had escalated to the point that even other people who were sinful noticed how sinful it was. And yet, he received the grace of God, and that day, he was with Jesus in paradise. So I want to end with this. If you don't know, if Jesus were to come today, that you would be uh, ushered into his presence, into that grateful uh, forever existence with him in eternity. If you don't know that, um, you can, this could be the day where all that changes. And I want to just lead you through a prayer. It's not that the prayer, it's not that these are special words or magic words or anything like that. It's just that I'll give you a little bit of guidance on just how to approach God. Instead of saying, I'm going my own way. I want to be God. I want to be in charge. This is just simply an act of saying, you can be in charge, God. You can dictate the terms of my life. I need your leadership. I need your forgiveness. And I want forever with you. I'm groaning enough in this world. I want uh, what you have for me in the next world. So let me just lead you in a prayer. And you can repeat this on your own if you want. Uh, but it's mainly, it's your heart response to God that says, you lead. I need your forgiveness. I'm a sinner. Would you save me? Let's pray. So dear Father, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me to live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to thank you for joining us today. God bless you this week. If you've made that commitment for the very first time, maybe you prayed that prayer and you've prayed it many times before just as a, a daily prayer of commitment, but maybe it's the first time and you've committed your life to Christ, would you reach out to us? I invite you to phone. Just phone the number that's going to come up in a little while and, and let us know about it. And we would love to uh, encourage you, uh, pray with you, uh, and even just maybe give you some ideas for some next steps in your life. God bless you.